This episode of the Adventure Jogger podcast brought to you by Cheesehead Forever, Go Pack Go, Stephen Fear the Turtle, Scott Randall, Daniel Smith, Pete Dady, and all of our Patreon supporters, and of course you, the listener. The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. Janice, um, first thing before we get into your running journey and all of the amazing things that you have done, I feel like I need to apologize to you, Janice. Um, I kind of pride myself on knowing the who's who of you know trail and ultra running, the legends, the icons, um, the people who have made a huge difference in the sport. And I, I am Janice. I don't know why. I only discovered Janice Anderson like six weeks ago, but <laughs> I think legend is a fair term to describe you, your ultra sign up. Oh my God. <laughs> I've been around for a few years. That's for sure. Uh, you have had a 34 year ultra marathon career. Uh, you ran the Canyons 100 K not too terribly long ago, it's a couple of weeks ago, as of the recording yeah. of this episode. But that very first ultra for you it was in 1989, Strolling Jim, the iconic Tennessee Laz 40 mile ultra marathon through the back roads of War Trace, Tennessee. Um, you won that, by the way, and you've won Strolling Jim so many times, they might as well just change the dang name of the race to Strolling Janice. <laughs> <laughs> at, at this point, I got to know, how did it all start? Because 1989, ultra marathons are not popular. They are these crazy things no one's ever heard of. They're these things no one does. Like, Janice, give us your running story up until you discover this race called Strolling Jim? Um, sure. So I, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. Mm -hmm. um, you're probably familiar with some of the races there. Yeah. And um, so I started running back in the 70s, actually. Yeah. In grade school. And um, I dappled in marathons early on. I ran one in eighth grade. You um, ran a marathon in eighth grade? Yeah, the, that was the big race in town. So it was just kind of like, oh, dad, I want to run the marathon. And <laughs> my parents were like, sure, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I ran the marathon in eighth grade and I ran it a couple times in high school. And um, so I had a distance running background, uh, did a lot of running in high school and college. And uh, when I got out of college, a couple of my friends in Huntsville, people like Dink Taylor mm -hmm. and a couple other guys, they told me about strolling gym. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, you should totally run this. You would just, you would kill it. You would, you would do so great. You should come run with us. Yeah. So it's pretty much as soon as I got out of college, um, I decided to run strolling gym and just went and ran it. So, 
That was my first ultra. It sounds like running has been a huge part of your life that you've always enjoyed it. Do you remember the first time like when you discovered like, okay, this is my thing? Um, Definitely early on, I really loved it. Um, I was kind of one of those kids, I tried every sport, Mm -hmm. you know, I did swimming, I did tennis, I did um, softball, basketball, but um, running just, it was something I even enjoyed as a kid to do by myself. Mm -hmm. I would just go run by myself and just go do 10 or 12 miles here and there. And um, in high school too, I just, I just really enjoyed the atmosphere of running. Um, both in Huntsville at different road races, mm-hmm. but also the team aspect of cross country and track. And um, I've never stopped running. I've just always loved to run. So I can imagine what it must have been like for, you know, fresh out of college, Janice Anderson, you know, ran a marathon when she was in eighth grade. She's been on the road running scene. She's been in the marathon scene. And then Dink Taylor, who's probably 20 at this point, or uh, in his 20s. Yeah, we're the same age, basically, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so, so young Dink Taylor brings you into this world of strolling gym. What was your reaction and your thoughts rolling up to War Trace, Tennessee, and the starting line of strolling gym. Well, it was kind of funny. I went up with a couple friends. One was running and I would kind of surprise them that I was going to run. Like I tricked them. I was like, oh, I'm going to crew. But then I was like, no, really, I'm going to run. <laughs> um, and so I just went into it like I'm just going to run my training pace and have fun. And I loved it. It was just like rolling hills and it just it, you know, at a training pace, it just felt super easy and fun. And i met all these great athletes at the time it was really a big competitive race there were a lot of top men athletes that came and ran it um so it was really interesting to meet those people and talk to them about other ultras so that kind of sparked in me like oh you should try this and you should try that you know they they told me about some other ultras that i should try and really encouraged me you know having won the race they're like wow you you might have a knack here for running. Up you, you might want to try some more of these things. So um, it really did spark my interest to try some more. Although it took me a number of years to do more than one or two a year because there just there weren't that many around, especially mm-hmm. close by that I could easily travel to. Um, so even though I really liked it, it actually it took me a number of years to get more involved with it. I did notice that for a couple of years, it was mainly just strolling gym. You were running strolling gym, going back, you were winning strolling gym or second place. You were constantly on the podium there. Um, for, for those of us that have run strolling gym in the last 20 years, what was that race like in 1989? Now there's aid stations, Laz will trash talk, <laughs> spray paint trash talk on the road. What was 1989 strolling gym um, like there were definitely no aid stations that i remembered there was this guy that would drive on the course i forgot the name of the electrolyte that he sold but he had this electrolyte drink and he would drive along and offer his electrolyte drink out to runners which is really nice of him and there were jugs of warm water every now and then and i really liked it that the walls were dirt mm-hmm. so the section called the walls which is yeah. five or six miles after the marathon point yeah um, were all dirt and no cars or crews were allowed. 
And so you just, it was kind of like running trail almost. You were just up there on the dirt roads and um, super hilly and nobody around. And it was all about survive. To me, it was all about surviving the walls and getting out of the walls okay um, to do the last 10K to the finish line. It is so funny because that is the worst section of the course even now with it's, when it's paved i think it's probably it's probably even worse yeah. now i'm sure when you were doing it because it wasn't paved and it was dirt roads you weren't having to deal with so many vehicles passing and so many cars going by yeah i don't think they were allowed mm-hmm. like i don't think crews were allowed so i don't think you hardly saw any cars on the walls but the, fa- what I remember. the family that lives in the on the property right before the walls they have been setting up a little impromptu aid station there for years. Were they set up in 1989? Not that I remember, okay. but it's been a long time. Well, so. yeah, 1989, <laughs> you know, 34 years, time yeah. flies. Um, it all runs together too. You know? <laughs> so, so it's kind of neat that here you are, you know, you're probably saying I've done 26 miles a bunch of times. I can do 40 if I just kind of kind of go slow, a slower than what you were right. accustomed to. And you win the darn thing. And these friends that you've made, the Dink Taylors of the world. I saw that Ray K, uh, or Ray Krolwich, Ray the K was there at that strolling gym uh, yeah. that first year that, that you ran it as well. And, and Ray is such an icon in the sport, still going strong today. So you really are welcomed into this world of ultra running as you are experiencing your first ultra and seeing a whole new world open up. You must have thought like, like there's more than just this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that there's more than just the marathon that, um, that you could push your limits beyond just the 26 miles, which a lot of people thought were long was far, right? but to, to, to imagine going further. And that was really the first time I thought about going further than 40. Cause the people I met were like, you should try a hundred K you should try to get on the hundred K team. You should run a 50 mile or a hundred mile. And so I had never, I'd never heard of races that far. Mm-hmm. I, I did know. So one of the icon runners from Strolling Gym is Pete Salima. Mm-hmm. He won Strolling Gym many times. So he was from Huntsville and he was somebody I ran with some. And yeah, he he had a couple times at track meets run the whole day <laughs> at the track while we were running the track meet. And so I remember him running like 40 or 50 miles at these track meets. So I knew it was possible and I knew people did this. But I didn't know there were just like organized races out there that people did more than 40 miles or so. So meeting all those people was kind of like this introduction to, wow, I could do all these other things besides just marathons and short races and stuff. And you have to think this is this is so I, I don't know if people like grasp this for a second. Now the sport is huge. It's a boom. There's live streams. You can watch Western States all day and all night on YouTube. But this is 1988-89. This is Janice out of college. Nobody knows ultra running. And to be in Huntsville and to be in an area where there are a handful of people doing these things, I mean, that is pure luck. What was it about the Huntsville running scene in the late 80s that was ripe for so many athletes yourself and Dink Taylor and more included that would make this almost like a, a, a mecca of ultra running in the South when nobody had heard of it. I think part of it had to do with the Huntsville Track Club. They had already at that point been around for 15 
plus years Mm -hmm. and putting on that marathon for that long. So there was already this atmosphere of um, an environment that was welcoming to long distance running. And then I definitely think Pete had a lot to do with it because he'd been running these long distances all those before that, like the last 10 or 15 years. So he influenced people like me and Dink and uh, a couple other guys that I, we all ran together. And so I think he was probably the catalyst to the idea for us younger folks, because he was a little older than us, um, to try the longer distances and see what it was like. And so people like me and Dink and a couple other guys, we started to try them too. So, When did you hear about Western States for the first time? Um. So the first time I heard about it was like in the early 90s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Not for a few years. I mean, after Stroll and Jim. Um, I met a girl in my neighborhood who ran and they had just moved to, at this point I was living in Atlanta. Yeah. And they had just moved to Atlanta from California and um, they had crewed and paced and been part of Western states. And they showed me a video of um people coming into an aid station and stuff like that and so i was like wow that's super interesting so i told my training partner at the time about it and he really got into it and that's when we both decided we're going to run western states someday and so we both started training for it and he actually ran it in 94 and uh that was i was supposed to go pace and crewing but he got sick and so um funny thing is like he's like no don't come out don't come because i'm too sick i'm yeah. not gonna run even though he was already there he right. just suddenly got sick and i was like fine i won't come and then they talked him into running and so even though he had like the flu or something he ran it <laughs> and he finished like he was like one of the last people to finish like in 29 50. <laughs> um so i i was like well i have to run it next year so in 1995 i signed up and ran it Okay, like, this is so, just the fact that you moved to Atlanta, right? Like, so you, just by chance, you meet these ultra runners in Huntsville where you were living at the time, and you discover Strolling Gym and War Trace, Tennessee, run it a bunch of times and look for some new things. And then you move to Atlanta and you meet a runner. And this is early 90s that had known Western states. Like now, of course, a lot of people, the odds are good at the running group that you go to on Tuesday nights that someone's going to have heard at least of Western states. This is the early 90s. Like a lot of things kind of came into your life that created this almost perfect storm of like a lot of like it's almost like the universe was saying to you, Janice, I really want you to ultra run because a lot of things were popping up, pointing you in directions. Yeah, like this was just, I just happened to meet this late woman who was another runner and she was from California. And so they just happened to be part of Western states when they lived there. So it was just kind of cool to start hearing about that and hear about more different types of races. So around that same time that I met them, I had heard about the fat ass, mm-hmm. the the idea of a fat ass. Run. Right, right. And so I started the fat ass in Atlanta in 94 and um like at the time there were hardly any other ultras around and so that was kind of my beginning to like hey i i should put on some ultras because there's not enough ultras around and so that was kind of my first delve into trying to race direct as well as run yeah get more involved in 
showing other people about ultra running and not just doing it myself. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because now you have resources, right? You have the internet, you can reach out to other race directors via Facebook messenger and just say, Hey, couple of ideas. Like how, how, how do I get started in this? And I've heard stories of race directors that have done that. They've reached out to other race directors on social media and they're like, Oh, Hey, you got to do this, this, and this, and here's how you get the LLC and here's how you get the insurance and that sort of thing. But in 1994, when you're getting ready to launch the Atlanta fat ass, like nobody, there was no resources on how to do this. You really had to figure this out on the fly. Yeah, I just think I I just read an article in Ultra Running because by this time I had, of course, gotten a a subscription to Ultra Running and there was an article about it. And so I'm like, well, we can totally do this. You know, we're going to be under the radar. We're not, you know, going to be official, but you know, trying to generate some interest within the running community and get a few people out there to try something a little further than marathon. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was a learning experience to try to get people um, to know about it and want to do it. And Ultra Running Magazine was definitely helpful in mm-hmm. that you could you could put the results there so people could see that you did it and uh, you could get a little more attention. They had a calendar back then. There was a calendar in mm-hmm. the back of the magazine. So you could put your races in the back and you could get people to um, know that you're going to have an, an event. So um, that was kind of the beginning of starting to think about stuff like that. And the good old days of mailing a check. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember I still have like, I even did one recently, like a manual entry form, you know, where there's the info at the top and there's the little thing at the bottom. You got to fill it out and you got to put your check in there and you got to sign it and all that stuff. So yeah, many years of having the manual Manual entry forms and checks and that sort of thing. 1995 is your first year of running Western States, but you also won JFK in 1995. Yeah. JFK. Yeah. JFK is a huge step up from Strolling Jim. This is, I mean, Strolling Jim is an iconic race, been been run since 1977 or 78. It's it's been running for 45 years. Um, But JFK, I mean, this is iconic. This is, you know, President Kennedy saying, let's do something hard. What was it like going into that world and showing up at a race like JFK and then winning JFK? Um, Well, I had heard about it after running Mountain Masochist. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd run Mount Masochist and won yeah. that and people were kind of encouraging. So um, it was very similar to Mount Masochist, but I remember JFK the first year I ran it, I kind of like signed up for the little program because, you know, back then I was pretty young and didn't have a lot of resources or money. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it was like you stayed with a family. So I like flew up there and just stayed with some <laughs> and I did it for Mount Masochist too. Like when I went up there, I stayed with a family that offered a room to runners. And uh, same with JFK. I went up and stayed with somebody and they like took me to the race. And uh, that is so cool. They picked me up at the finish line. And that particular year was a year of government shutdown, yeah. which we have every now and then. But mm-hmm. that year, the government was shut down the week or so of the race. Um, so like we couldn't, we had to cover our numbers up. <laughs> and it was just weird. And there had been a big storm. And so there was like a foot of snow on the trail. And I don't know. It was a crazy race. It was I couldn't believe I won because it was just a lot of obstacles go, go getting to the finish line of that particular race. But that back up just for a second here. 
you're fresh out of college. You're in your early 20s. You're my you're my daughter's age. And the ultra running scene, both Mountain Masochist and JFK is, hey, we've got some folks here that got a room. And you just, they will pick you up at the airport. They'll take you to the house, give you a place to stay. They will drive you to the start line of JFK. And they will pick you up at the finish line. And you can stay with these folks. Like, that's bonkers. I think it's beautiful, by the way. I think that, oh, I, I don't know if in today's day and age when everybody believes that everybody's horrible and, and there's just, the world's full of kidnappers and murderers, if it could work. But what a beautiful thing about the community of ultra running where people are just opening up their homes to random strangers to run these races and bringing them to the start line, picking them up at the finish line. I'm sure the drive home in the station wagon back to the place you were staying was filled with questions and, oh my God, I can't, you won. How great was that? That must have been just an awesome time to be in the world of ultra running. Yeah, I can still remember. I just loved it at Mount Masochist, especially. I stayed with the same family like three or four years and they were just so sweet. Like I can even remember the lady was like, the day after the race, I'm like, hey, I have to go run this morning because I run every day. <laughs> <laughs> Will you take me somewhere to go for a run before I fly home? And she's like, what? And I'm like, yeah. And so she took me somewhere and she went for a walk so I could go run a few miles. Um, but they were just so helpful and so sweet and so nice to open their home up to me and other runners too. Like uh, I know at least one year there were a couple of other runners there. Um, so it was kind of cool to like just meet people at somebody's house, you know, it's just kind of low yeah. key and uh, um, just kind of the family atmosphere. That is so, so cool. What was your race that qualified you for Western States in 95? Was it masochist? I don't even know. Uh, it might, I might've put like a hundred K race. Like at that point, my main focus actually at that point, regardless of these other things was I was, Every year I was trying to run a fast 100K road race because yeah. I was trying to qualify for the team. Yeah. So um, I probably had put 100K road race time to qualify. Okay. And did you did yeah. you make it? I, I couldn't see. Ultra sign up is, is limited with your results. But I was as I was snooping on snooping. your Facebook page, I did see photos of you in red, white, and blue. So yeah. you did eventually yeah. make the 100K team. I was on the team um, five times. Wow. Five times representing the United States on the Team USA 100K team. Yeah, I got to travel the world uh, being on the team. So it was really, it was always very, very exciting to be on the team. It was always, for me, it was the, before I really got into Western States, the 100K team was my main drive. Yeah. yeah. What, how did you get it in, in 1995? What was the entry process for Western States? Um. There was a lottery back then, although I I don't think I realized there was a lottery, but there was a lottery. <laughs> so you just filled out a paper application and you sent it in and I got in. So I mean, you had no idea if there was a lottery. <laughs> I don't I don't remember there being a lottery, but I've read recently that there was a lottery. So I was like, oh, I didn't even know there was a lottery, but I guess I got lucky and I got in. So. No, again, this is the universe saying, Janice, you need to do big things. We're going to get you in. Well, and again, it was quite a bit different back then. Less people applying to Western States. Do you remember what the entry fee was back in 1995? I don't. I don't remember. I got to have somebody track. I'd love to see 
the entry fee over over the years. But here you are. You are this runner from the American South, Huntsville, Alabama. You'd done mountain races before. You did mountain masochist, and you know there's there's parts of JFK on the Appalachian Trail. So you know you're not a, you're not. It's not unusual. But you show up into what is now called Olympic Valley, back then called Squaw Valley, uh, the start line of the Western States 100. What did a young lady from the American South think? When you arrive at Squaw Valley and there ahead of you is the first climb of the race. Um, that, I mean, that didn't bother me too much. Um, I was just I was nervous about the distance because I hadn't run that far before. Mm-hmm. It was my first hundred mile. Um, and there were a few friends of mine from the East Coast, but it was really back then there were very few East Coast people like um, of that were competitive that right. were running the race. So th- at least the first four or five times I ran, it just really felt like there were not that many of us from the East coast and we would typically like kind of get together, you know, and um, hang out because I-, I didn't know that many people from the West coast. There was a few people I would know from the hundred K team, but for the most part, it was just intimidating. It was intimidating to see all these super fast west coast people and here i'm from the east coast i don't have any real mountains i don't have any altitude and 95 had a lot of snow and i had no experience running in the snow um so it was it was intimidating but still you were ninth you finished ninth place at western states the first time out in snow in all of these things that you i mean you weren't it it was new territory unfamiliar runners that first year for you that must have been like what, what was the experience you had that first year running Western States? We know the 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 starting line was a a place for eastern eastern runners to meet up and and, and kind of you know have fun together before the race. But the race itself, how was that for you? Um, the snow was super interesting, um, just because there was so much snow the first twenty five miles or so. Um, there were. It was a snow route, so I don't remember the changes they made mm-hmm. that year versus other snow route years. But, like, I don't think I could see – my husband was my crew. I don't think I could see him until, like, Michigan Bluff, I think. Oh, wow. So, you're actually – you were. I was just out there forever, it seemed like, before I really got to see my husband. And um, But overall, once I got out of the snow, I was like, I'm out of the snow. I feel fine. The heat was really bad, but – I'm from Georgia, so it didn't bother me. Right. Um, Back then, I was really good in the heat. I um, ran well in the heat. And I had done a lot of training on the Appalachian Trail. So um, the hills, none of that really bothered me once I was actually running. Once I actually was in the process of competing, I was okay. Um, And just super happy to get to the finish line. Um, I don't think I even really realized what place I was in till towards the end. And I didn't know until after the race that, oh, if you're in the top 10, you get invited back. <laughs> so I, that was the first time was after I actually got done that I realized uh, you got to come back the next year. You had no idea there was a lottery beforehand. You got yeah. in. You had no idea you could come back if you made the top 10. So you come back again in 96. You would you would be in 96. You would get eighth place. So you moved up one place. And then in 1997, this was a big year for the Eastern 
United States when it comes to Western states. It is the last time an Eastern runner has brought the Cougar across the Mississippi. That was the year Mike Morton won. You took second place at Western states in 1997. What was, was there some kind of Eastern magic and in squaw that year? What, what happened? Um, yeah, I have this great picture of the East Coast group um, before the race, like Mike and Courtney Campbell and Jim Garcia and a bunch of us. Um, Dink, I think maybe even was in was there. So yeah, there was a big group from the East Coast there that year. I think I was the only female, but um, mm-hmm. there was a strong group. Um, I wasn't really expecting to do that well. I had just run Old Dominion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of was like, oh, I'm in good shape, but I don't know. So it was kind of crazy. I just felt good all day and just um, bebopped my way to Forest Hill and had a great day. Was there, you talk about just the separation. You didn't know people from the West. Was there kind of a Eastern-Western rivalry between runners in the 90s at Western States? I, I kind of felt like there was to some extent. At least there was a oh east coast runners they don't run good at western states yeah you know that there weren't that many east coast runners who'd really been in the top 10 or are done really well so i think there was a bit of competition and east coasters felt like they needed to show that they were just as good as the west coast runners um so that was first year i think there was a big group of us that were out there and really did well what was it like at the end was there a party did you guys get together and celebrate the fact that not only did you take second place, but Morton won the Cougar. That was the best year for the East ever. Yeah, we hung out. Um, gosh, the the award ceremony used to be in the gym, and it was it was hotter in that gym than it was in the canyons. Oh my goodness, it was so hot you'd just like about to die. And so yeah, we're all sitting there together, the East Coasters, and just hanging out um, during the awards and afterwards. Um, it was just such a big deal because Mike won. Um, so it's so exciting to see several of us do really well. So you'd go back again in 98 and you would mm-hmm. place third yeah. in 1998. Yeah. Was that, a, was that enough for you? Because really you were, you were one of those people that were poised to, as you continue to do really well, you could have been a, a, a 10-time Western States finisher just because of how competitive and strong you were at that race. Yeah, looking back, I wish I I could or should have just kept running it, but I guess I got to a point I just had limited vacation time and I got to where I was like, okay, I've run it five times. I maybe I should do something different. Mm-hmm. Um so in the year 2000, I was like, I'm not going to enter western Instead, I'm going to run all the East Coast hundreds that I haven't run yet. <laughs> in one year. In one year. That was my plan. Um, because I was like, instead of spending a week vacation going to Western States, I'm going to spend a week vacation doing 600 miles. Um, so I just decided to branch out and just do something different. Um, now I wish I'd kept going and at least gotten closer to 10 because I did run Western two more times in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, but I mean, it was fun to do the other hundred. So 
Yeah. So, so 2000 is the year you want to do the six. It's so funny you say the six Eastern United States 100s. <laughs> it's like, because now, I mean, my God, there's six a month where back right. then it'd be six. So it would be Vermont, Old Dominion, Umstead. Well, there were seven, okay. but I'd already done Old Dominion. Okay. So I was like, I don't have to do that one. So I did Rocky, Umstead. Mm-hmm. Massanutten, okay. Mohican. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm leaving one out. Kettle Moraine? Was it Kettle? Um, I think that was... I th- Vermont, like okay. you said, Vermont, uh-huh. and then Ar- Arkansas. Okay, Arkansas Traveler. Yeah, and I saw a lot. There's a lot of W's in your ultra sign-up rankings in that period of time. Yeah. That, that was really cool to see, and I'm sure that was a great year for you to be traveling around the eastern United States and collecting a lot of W's, winning a lot of, of trophies and getting some nice buckles. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Um, some of them, and being on the East Coast, some of them, I mean, I didn't even spend hardly any time getting there and coming home, like just in and out. Yeah. Friday, Friday Sunday kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, Janice? Why do you think, because so many people will find the sports, spend some time in the sport, and then find something else to do because it is so taxing on the body. It is so taxing on the on the on the mind. It is so taxing on your vacation times and travel. It can be a very expensive sport. What is it, Janice, you think that has allowed you to enjoy it and to continue doing it for 34 years? Um, I think the couple of things are one, I, I really enjoy traveling. So I've always used running races as a means to see the world. Mm-hmm. So to, to just go places I've never been. Um, so for instance, I've run a marathon or ultra in every state mm-hmm. and an ultra in every continent. And I'm trying to get more and more every year. I want to run in a new country. Yeah. It's my whole new goal, but you also just meet so many different kinds of people. So just, you know, meeting all of these different people and all the different places you go and then bringing friends along. So a lot of my races, I try to go with a friend or meet up with a friend from the years. I Like recently I was in Boston and a friend from California was there. And August, I'm going to meet up a friend who moved to Ohio. Mm-hmm. We're going to run a race in West Virginia. So it's just a way to stay connected to people yeah. and a way to see the world and meet new people. So it for me, it just keeps it interesting. It's always interesting. You may be an expert, and I'm glad you're here because this is a great question to ask to someone who has traveled so much and has raced so much all over the world. How, how do you travel and race? So many people have a hard time traveling and then being able to run competitively like what's your secret to being able to travel and race um i don't know i don't know if i have a secret um just try to i plan ahead i'm you can ask any of my friends i'm an obsessive planner so uh i do a lot of spreadsheets of everything and (laughs) I, I do a lot of planning and just make sure I I have a plan set out so it makes me feel more comfortable mm-hmm. like it makes me relaxed to know I have everything planned out and um, I don't have to worry about things yeah. so I think the biggest thing is not not being worried and not being rushed 
um, and just being able to relax enough to get to the starting line in a relaxed state and not be too nervous. But like flying, I, is it, did, did you always like do a shakeout run before you'd get on a plane and then, you know, the second you're in the hotel and put things up, you do a shakeout run just to kind of keep the legs moving? That's a hard for some people, especially when American runners go to Europe, of you're sitting on a plane for 20 hours to get there. I am a big believer in shakeout runs. So even if I only do a mile or so, I like to do a shakeout run. I mm-hmm. like to move my legs, get the blood flowing again. Um, and in the airplane, take a nap or move around a little bit, but uh, definitely try to stay a little bit active because mm-hmm. you don't want to stiffen up too much right. before the race. So yeah, whatever I can do to kind of keep loose before the race is, is best. Mm-hmm favorite place you have ever run <laughs> that's so people ask me that a lot i probably change my answer every time that's okay um, um gosh that's hard to say two of the most memorable are one is antarctica so yeah. running in antarctica was really interesting the whole trip was kind of crazy and interesting um and then iceland so i ran an ultra in iceland mm-hmm. It was kind of like being on the moon or some other, I don't know, planet. It was just really different, totally weird, different terrain, but it was really pretty too. Yeah. Two good answers. I mean, it's beautiful both ways. And I'm sure the Antarctica Mm -hmm. experience was to see desolation and to see such quietness, such vast bleakness, but it's all snow and ice and it's freezing cold. But there's, I mean, that had to have been just an otherworldly experience to be running in Antarctica. There is, to me, there's beauty and starkness. So we did run past some of the, the, the places like the, the Russians and the Chileans have their bases there. Mm-hmm. So you did run by some buildings and that sort of thing. But yeah, just you're running on just whiteness. There's just, and there's no plants. There's not a single green piece of greenness anywhere around it's just white and blue and cold and windy and um but i i mean it's different and it's just there's a beauty in that just Mm -hmm. like i think i love to run the desert because i think there's a beauty in the desert the starkness of the the desert with the the cactus Mm -hmm. and the tumbleweeds and that sort of thing so um just the different different atmosphere the different environment um very interesting 34 years of ultra running what are some of the things you've learned and i want to start about like training what have you learned about training over 34 years of running ultras um the big and easiest thing is that consistency is key Mm -hmm. so to be to be good i mean you need to be consistent and just being consistent you're going to improve so if you can be consistent, you can improve. And so for a lot of people, even myself, you know, I've had injuries and that sort of thing. It can be hard to stay consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, but consistent running is one of the key things to to staying fast and being able to do what you want to do. Um, also, I like variety. So I think changing things up where you run on the road some, you run on the trail some, you do some speed work, you do some hill work. Um, so some variety and your running keeps it not only interesting, but I think it's good for your body mm-hmm. to, um, have it go through different 
types of running. Um, it, it keeps the different parts of your body um, more agile and in shape. Um, and again, I like to plan things out. So having a plan is helpful well for a race. So I think if you're not really got a big race coming up, it's fine to just run whatever feels good. But if you have a race that you really want to excel at to kind of plan backwards from that um, mm -hmm. and see what you need to do to get there. Do you take time? Do, do, does your year wane a bit? Are you, do you have a lower cycle and do you have a, a higher mileage cycle and you kind of like weave in and out of that to recover or do you kind of stay consistent on distance and so on as far as weekly mileage is concerned throughout the week, throughout the year? Uh, it de depends on a little bit on what races I mm -hmm. end up signing up for, but typically I don't like to run too much in the heat of the summer. So that's usually a lower mileage time for me. Um, and I do take easy weeks. So like I just, like you mentioned, I just ran canyons. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking three weeks of just running whatever feels good and not putting in too many miles and just doing other stuff. So I do okay. think it's a good, good to take some time, uh, some downtime where you run a little bit less or do something else besides running. But I do think active recovery is important. Like you shouldn't just sit around and right. lay on the couch, you know, <laughs> go for a walk, go for a bike ride, go for a swim, do whatever. But um, you don't have to always run, but right. um, to, to get some active recovery in there. Nutrition, 34 years of ultra marathons. What have you learned about nutrition? That's probably my biggest weakness, nutrition. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think nutrition, especially outside of racing, it's good to have a variety of type of foods. Mm -hmm. um, so not a lot of processed food, but eat, eat a variety of foods. And then my nutrition racing, like in a in an event, I think I've gotten to where I've got mine dialed in and everybody is different. So right. I encourage people when I'm t talking about nutrition and races is you got to try it out in your training runs. You know, you need to try it out yourself and see what works for you. But for me, less is better. So I don't, I don't take it in a lot in races. Um, I try to keep it to a minimum, the less, yeah. stomach issues i can have the better so um i don't don't take in a lot of stuff do you find, find though works for me. yeah do you find though that now here we are living in the ultra marathon boom where there are a million different products out there there are a million different sports drinks there are a million different gels there's a million different packs to carry it in you can carry it on your on your waist you can carry it on your back you can have water bottles that that look like like arrow quivers where you're trying to reach behind you and put your water bottle in there there is something for everyone where and i'm sure when you were running strolling gym in 1989 it was gatorade and beef jerky or something like do you look at what we have now and go, my God, what could I have done if I would have had all these options back in 89 when I didn't have a darn thing? I do. I, well, when I was running today and thinking about the call for tonight, I was thinking through things like that. And yeah. One that stuck out was when I ran, ran Rocky Raccoon, mm -hmm. um, which was 2000. So back then they didn't, I didn't really, there was no packs. Like you didn't have like a pack you would wear. Yeah. You like carried a handheld. Right. Right. 
and there, you didn't have headlamps. Like I didn't have a headlamp back then. You carried a, I actually carried like a D cell battery flashlight. <laughs> like the old mag light. <laughs> yeah. And um, so anyway, and that particular race, right after it got dark, my, my flashlight stopped working and I didn't have a light. And um, a guy I know caught up to me and I was like, hey, do you have a spare light? And luckily he did. And he gave me his spare light. But it was kind of funny because, you know, like I just had nothing really, no backup for sure and no headlamp and you're carrying a, um, a handheld. And similar in um, the same year I ran Mass and Nutton, mm-hmm. I had fallen and broken my arm during the race. And um, same kind of thing. It's like I only got one arm now and I got to carry my bottle and my flashlight in my one hand because my other hand, my arm's broken. <laughs> You just don't have as much. You just didn't have the stuff that you have now. So it was just a lot different back then. Janice, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to let you nonchalantly just glance over the fact that you broke your arm at Massanutten. And then I was having a hard time figuring out, like, how am I going to carry it? Not thinking, like, okay, am I going to drop at the next aid station because I got a bone sticking out of my skin? Well, see, it wasn't sticking out, so... I was just like, wrap it up. Just like, put a wrap on it. <laughs> I love that your man, your your mindset was, man, how am I going to carry this flashlight and the water bottle at the same time now that I got a broken arm? That was totally my mindset. It's like, <laughs> what, how am I going to do this? This is going to be tough. What mile did you break your arm at? Do you remember? It was about- around 78, I think. 25, 20- 78. 20 plus miles of one functioning arm. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, that was a bad race. That was a bad day. Yeah, yeah, but you, you ended up, you know, finishing the darn thing. So that's... that's I did finish, yeah. Was that the one you won? Was the one where you broke your... Um, I was second that year. Oh, yeah. man. I bet you that first place gal's like, well, thank God she broke her arm or else I, I probably wouldn't have won that one. It was Sue Johnston, too. So she was probably not afraid, but yeah. <laughs> mindset like how to ask you now i mean you're the one that dropped that you broke your arm like how do you like what is what is it about you like what what is your mental process that just makes you want to keep going where nobody would say like oh janice is wimp if you broke your arm and dropped to the next aid station because you've got a broken arm what's going on in your noodle janice that makes you just go like i ain't quitting i don't care I mean, not that I haven't had races where I haven't quit because mm-hmm. I've certainly DNF'd a few times, but that particular one, I was just like, that was my mindset was I'm finishing this race. I don't care. I'm finishing this race. So my arm kind of hurt and I could tell it was broken, but I was just like, it'll be fine. I'm just going to keep going. I just want to finish. That was my whole mindset. Well, maybe so, the, the arm hurting just took it away from your feet. Like you didn't feel the, yeah, the, the pain in your legs. Worry about my legs or anything. <laughs> I actually was thinking about it at Canyons because Canyons recently, I didn't have a great day. It got super hot and I mm-hmm. got really nauseous. But my mindset was I'm finishing unless they pull me. I'm like, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Um, and so I tried to think about how to solve the problem versus having a, I was like, no pity parties. Let's solve the problem. Let's think through how to feel better mm-hmm. instead of just agonizing over the fact that I didn't feel good. Um, so that's part of 
the way I try to think through a lot of races, especially now that I'm getting older and closer to cutoffs. I try to think more of um, how to solve problems and not to not to worry about if things are going bad just to solve and maybe make it better so I can keep going because mm-hmm. I don't want to stop unless they make me stop. Has that been the worst bind you've been in, by the way, the broken arm, or have you been in tougher spots? Well, I had a that? worse bro- broken arm, so <laughs> <laughs> I had a different race where I broke my arm. Okay, but okay, the bone wasn't sticking out, but it didn't look good. So <laughs> uh, I had to walk like six miles to the next aid station, and then they. Um, it was at a dirt road, so the rangers were able to take me out. Oh, so you DNF that one because it wasn't looking. I did DNF, but <laughs> the, it looked bad. So, and I was only like ten miles into a fifty k, so I had a long way. Well, that's only twenty miles, I guess. But yeah, it was more like yeah, it didn't look great. So when the aid station volunteer is throwing up when you show them your your arm, <laughs> that's when you know it's like okay, I maybe know it's bad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. 34 years. What have you learned about rest and recovery? Um, like I said, I, I am a, I favor active rest mm-hmm. and recovery. So I definitely think it's good to take time after big events to recover, but I think it should be an active recovery where you do something and you keep moving. Um, like I have found, at least for me personally, the longer I wait to run after a, a big race, it I'm still going to hurt the first time I run. Right? So why not just do it? Why not just do it the first day afterwards and get it over with? <laughs> so I typically will run a mile or so the day after a race, um, and just just try to get my legs moving and that stuff type of stuff um and then just eating well and drinking well afterwards and it depends on the race so it depends on what what your body is what kind of condition it's in after Mm -hmm. races like i'm sure you're the same way like you've had races where you're you finish and you're totally fine the next day you're totally fine right then you've had some where your ankles swell up like a elephant and right you feel sick for three days and that sort of thing so you just have to think through it like how how bad do I really feel, and how should I adjust my my lifestyle to to feel better sooner? So definitely, you need to take a step back and kind of think through like how how bad off are you after a race that yeah. you might want to adjust your recovery in one direction or the other. Was there a was there a one mile shakeout victory run at Western States in 1997 with Mike no. Morton? <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, that might have been the time when I took I, I took a bath and then I couldn't get out of the bathtub. <laughs> like, not only did my legs not work, but my arms were so tired, I couldn't even pull myself out of the bathtub. I was so sore and so beat up. Like, I know I could not even... I walked like we went on a walk and stuff, but no running. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't get out of the bathtub. That's, you know, that's a hard day's work when you can't get out of the bathtub. Well, Western can put it to you and, you know, it can destroy your legs afterwards. (laughs) All right. 34 years, Janice. What have you learned about yourself in 34 years of ultra running? Um, Well, 
definitely that I am the type of person who likes to plan things and I like to track data and um, that I enjoy time on the trails in nature and being with friends and seeing new things with friends, having new experiences with friends. Um, So I think I've learned that it's more fun to do things with somebody Mm -hmm. than, than alone. Changes in the sport. You've seen it for 34 years. You were there when everyone thought there's just some random weirdos that are out doing stupid things um, to now where, I mean, Iron Man has bought UTMB and there are UTMB races all over the world. The Heck Canyons 100K was a UTMB race. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen that have stuck out to you over 34 years? I mean, the changes are enormous in 34 years. Um, I mean, it's not overall, it's not surprising. Um, but just like you said, just to go from at one point, I lived in Atlanta and there was like four of us <laughs> that did ultras in the whole state, just about. Yeah. And there was no races other than one or two, you know, for the whole year. Um, and things where if you wanted race results, you had to wait a couple months to get your ultra running magazine, or you had to get a phone call from somebody. Um, and, and the internet is part of that too. So mm-hmm. the internet has been part of the growth and part of the changes. Um, some I think are super cool just as a, a little bit of an IT geek. You yeah. know, I love some of the things where you can see video and you can track runners and like a recent 50, I ran, we wore a tracker in our bag and my husband could actually see me on a map to see where it was. You know, he was here in Atlanta and I was off doing the race. And um, so I think there's a lot of exciting things, you know, GPS, just think about GPS and watches and how it tracks all your stats and your, your vitals and um, just so much data out there. So much information now. Um, it's, It's kind of, I think it's really cool in a lot of ways um sometimes it's a little overwhelming yeah uh but i think overall it's it's a good thing that there's so many options and there's so much now that we can utilize to make running and being on being out there more enjoyable um so there's just so it's just so different now than it was then it's just there's just so many things to, it's hard to list them all yeah but i can imagine you, you said you're an it kind of an it nerd you love the the data and all that stuff when when gps watches were first a thing and that first garmin forerunner that looked like you were wearing a calculator mm-hmm. on your wrist did you have one of those i didn't have the calculator one i got one of the i got one of the next ones where they were a little bit smaller and you wore the chest strap and stuff yes yeah yeah so i had one of those it was a 205 i think is what it was something like that yeah yeah and it was i mean you had like four hours of of battery life if you were lucky if you were lucky yeah so now i mean you look at these watches now i saw uh janice there's a new watch sunto's got a watch called the vertical and it's something like 68 hours of GPS tracking, like not oh, like, yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> but it's not like the GPS tracking where they ping you once a minute and it's wildly inaccurate. It's like full GPS tracking, like 68 hour battery life, which when oh, you wow. think about the, the old two Oh five, you're like, we have gone a long way from barely four hours. If you're lucky to 
a week <laughs> essentially of full gps tracking that would be nice yeah yeah but the, the watches have totally changed you know from the old casio to mm -hmm. i was super excited when they first had a watch where you could save up to a hundred runs on your watch <laughs> and not GPS or anything, not GPS, just the times, just the splits or whatever. It was just, you could save a hundred different runs. I was like, Oh, that's so exciting. And then I got one that had an altimeter and I was like, Oh my goodness. The future is here. That's, that's amazing. You know? So now with the GPS, uh, it's just crazy. All, all this stuff you can do. What do you, what as, as a data nerd and as someone who is, ran in the sport for as long as you have what are you currently running in watch wise watch wise i have a garmin surf gps okay so it was actually made for surf sports i i don't know why i decided to get this one but um yeah to say cowabunga i'm getting, getting a new one so yeah i think you need to get a you need to get a run and watch there <laughs> or do you surf too on your in, the, in your spare time um when i go to the beach i like to kayak okay all right. So, but um, it does all the running stuff. I mean, it has all oh, the okay. same things. It's It's got all the good, uh, like the sleep and um, HRV and okay, all that kind of stuff. So, it, I mean, it still does all the, uh, but I'm disappointed in the battery life. It was supposed to be 20 hours. Plus it has the sun where it's supposed to charge from the sun. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't work. <laughs> I think, I think they, they weren't, the technology's not quite there yet. Yeah. But they were like, we need to get this out. Like, we gotta, we gotta have our thing, and our thing is gonna be, it's gonna charge itself with solar. And then you realize when you look at the data of the early solar watches, and it's like, if you're lucky, you may get five percent back if you're in the, if you're in direct sunlight all day long. But I mean, you look at the the battery life of watches. 15 years ago to now so who knows but in 15 years janice we could be talking again and go can you believe remember when they only had like 68 hours of battery life and now <laughs> yeah. you never have to charge your watch because as long as you keep wearing it it's gps forever and we'll gps track ourselves and put our put everything on strava was there a moment janice um in the sport you remember where you were like where did all these people come from i don't remember the races being this crowded um yeah, definitely in the last like four or five years. Cause so the, I don't know if you know about the guts running mm -hmm. organization, yeah. right? So guts is um, a running club that I started and yeah, the last few years I get to our races, like we had one in April and we had just over 400 people and I only knew a couple dozen, Yeah, you know? I'm just like, who, who are all these people at this trail race in the mountains in Georgia? Like, yeah. This is great. But it's amazing. Like our, the annual fat ass, it was our 30th year this January. And uh, we had, I don't know, 250 people or so. And there were just so many that I didn't know. It was amazing. Like just, and it's been like that for a few years where we have these, we have our events and more and more people are coming that, are new to the um, event or new to the sport. And it's, it's kind of cool to see all these new people. Um, it is kind of hard seeing races close out all the time. Yeah. Not our races necessarily, but that's the thing I don't like. And, and I guess there's not a real good answer to it, but races just close out so fast. And there's so many people 
that want to run all the different races. So. Oh yeah. And you're right. I mean, I'm sure up until a point you were able to mail in your check and paper registration form pretty close to race day. Or in a race day. I definitely entered Sterling Gym before on race day. That's for sure. Did you have to bring (laughs) Laz cash or was it cigarettes? (laughs) I could have my husband give him cigarettes. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're right. That's a, that's a huge change. And I'm sure even too, like looking back, getting into Western States five times is a, is a blessing. You got in not even knowing there was a lottery. You sent in a paper registration and a check and you show up in Squaw Valley and you're, and you're all set and ready to go. Like that seemed like if you're not a top level runner, I don't see how a regular middle or back of the packer could ever run 10 Western States in today's lottery world. Not anymore. No, definitely not. What about the athletes, Janice? How has the athlete in these races changed over 34 years? Good and bad. Do you mean like the, the top level or the, well, the just, just just everybody? Everything? Just yeah, like the the average the average ultra runner. How how has that person changed over the years? I think there's a much broader mix of um ability now Mm -hmm. than maybe they're used to so similar to what you might see in marathons back in the 70s and early 80s not that many people that ran the marathon would run over say four hours right yeah but now you have marathons where the cutoff is say seven hours and you have plenty of people running four hours five hours six hours um which is kind of cool right you get people getting out being active um so there's a i think a broader range of people who are a little bit slower than maybe you used to see mm-hmm. are getting brave enough to get out there and do it yeah. and try it. Then in the past, I don't think you would see people try to do that. Whereas now I think you see people who are like, Hey, I'm going to go do this and I might be slower than this guy, but I'm going to go do it. And I think early on, you really didn't see as much of that, that there was like a smaller amount of people. And there was also a smaller um, window of times that right. people actually know. yeah do you think i mean what do you think caused people to become more comfortable with putting themselves out there and trying these things where before they'd been like i, I can't hang out with these muscly perfect <laughs> athletes what changed to bring these people into the sport well like with a lot of stuff i think when you get more and more people doing it and people see other people that look like themselves mm-hmm doing it they can say well my friend did it or this person did it and the more you see a range of people doing an activity the more i think people have um have the braveness to try it themselves so i think it's really good that you have more and more people trying it because it encourages other people to get out there and try it themselves Mm -hmm. when is it time for janice anderson to wrap it up 34 years Still going strong. Ran the canyons a couple weeks ago as of the recording of this podcast. Been doing this since 1989. When do you think you hang up those shoes? I'm not hanging them up unless they make me or I'm under the dirt type of thing. Yeah. (laughs) So my plan is to try to keep running as long as I can. Janice, this has been a fun hour. Oh, thanks. Thank you for, for sharing some of the insight. Thank you for, for allowing me to, to kind of let everybody know who you are because 
<laughs> you really have just, I mean, an amazing resume and just so many great stories. This has been a whole lot of fun. Thank you for, for doing this. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow, 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 wow,